Folks, this morning as you're sitting watching this service, either on the TV screen or on your gadget, your tablet and your hand, I'd ask you for a wee minute, just put down your cup of coffee, put down your 17 biscuits and engage with the Word of God. Reach for your Bible, open it up and get yourself over to 2 Corinthians chapter 7. We're working our way through the book of 2 Corinthians. We've got to this chapter and today we're going to read it beginning at verse 2 down to the end of the chapter. And of course, this is the word of God. Make room in your hearts for us. We have wronged no one. We have corrupted no one. We've taken advantage of no one. And I do not say this to condemn you. For I said before that you are in our hearts to die together and to live together. And I am acting with great boldness towards you. I have great pride in you. I am filled with comfort. In all our affliction, I am overflowing with joy. For even when we came into Macedonia, our bodies had no rest. But we were afflicted at every turn, fighting without and fear within. But God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus. And not only by his coming, but also by the comfort with which he was comforted by you. As he told us of your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoiced still more. For even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it. Though I did regret it, for I see that that letter grieved you, though only for a while. As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. For see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you, but also what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. At every point you have proved yourselves innocent in the matter. So although I wrote to you, it was not for the sake of the one who did the wrong, nor for the sake of the one who suffered the wrong, but in order that your earnestness for us might be revealed to you in the sight of God. Therefore, we are comforted. And besides our own comfort, we rejoiced still more at the joy of Titus, because his spirit has been refreshed by you all. For whatever boasts I made to him about you, I was not put to shame. But just as everything we said to you was true, so also our boasting before Titus has proved true. And his affection for you is even greater as he remembers the obedience of you all and how you received him with fear and trembling. I rejoice because I have complete confidence in you. Amen. And we thank God today for his precious word. None of us would argue with the statement this morning that these are incredibly difficult and frustrating days. Normal life is hindered in every way. Normal life and our liberty is curtailed in every way. And just when we started to believe the headlines that said we were coming out of pandemic and better days were ahead, 
news filters through from the corridors of power to tell us not quite and not yet. Wouldn't it be wonderful for me to be able to stand before you this morning and to proclaim some wonderfully good news of encouragement? It would be tremendous if I could come before you and look into your eyes and look into your homes and say, don't worry because in two weeks time it's all going to be over. But unfortunately, my friends, all of that is beyond me. And yet today I want this morning to be a time of encouragement for you. And in light of what God has said and his word and our response to it, a time of encouragement for one another. Paul, as he writes here in 2 Corinthians 7, writes to them and urges them to make room in your hearts for us. I'm always stunned by such language. As we look back into the past and read the New Testament and we think of men like Paul, we, we imagine that his days were always going to be good, always wonderful, always abounding in the work of the Lord, always seeing fruitful conversations and, and people being reached with the gospel and the church growing. It was always good. And yet as we catch a little sight into the reality of the apostle's life, here he is forced in 2 Corinthians 7 and verse 2 to urge a church that he was instrumental in seeing built off the ground. He urges them, make room in your hearts for us. Love us a wee bit more, says Paul. He writes and he is able to say with confidence that we have wronged no one among you. We have corrupted no one. We have taken advantage of no one. And once again, the theme that has run throughout the letter of 2 Corinthians, where the apostle is somehow forced to defend his own ministry, once again, he reminds them, I am not some fraud. I am not some charlatan. I'm not an individual that has robbed you or, or treated you harshly or taken advantage of you. I am an apostle. And I want you to make room in your hearts for us. I wonder why Paul is saying this. I wonder why he feels the need to write such things. Perhaps it is to pour hot coals on their head and to make them feel humiliated and belittled. Well, not quite. Paul says in verse 3, I do not say this to condemn you, for I said before that you are in our hearts to die together and to live together. And it's not a startling description of what life in the church is like. We die together and we live together. We are called to be the body of Christ. And how do we become this body? Is it that one day we walk into a building in a town and say, I'm here and I'm a member of this church. Is, is that how it works? Again, not quite. When we are members of the church of Jesus Christ, it is because we have trusted Jesus we have received him by faith. We have been saved and forgiven and declared righteous. We have received the gift of the Holy Spirit. We are Christians. We are a new creation. The old has gone. The new has come. Here is what is significant in the life of the Christian. Here is how we are to be in the body, living together and dying together going through the ups and the downs together of life, going through days where there is difficult conversations. And Paul admits here in verse 4 that he too has known days of difficult conversations. I am acting with great boldness towards you, says Paul. I'm speaking to you in a way that is difficult. I have written a stern letter to you in the past. 
Sometimes life together in the body is difficult. But as Christians, we will go through the good days and the bad days, the highs and the lows of being Christ's body on this earth. We will live together and we will die together. And there will be days that we gather together with tears streaming down our faces because we have lost someone that we care about, someone who taught us Sunday school, someone who led us to the Lord, someone who we've always looked up to. That's the Christian life. And so this morning I ask you to consider these words and I ask you to consider your very own fellowship. See, I wrote in a devotion recently about Mount Rushmore. I've never been there. I hope to visit it one day by the grace of God. It's a place in America in the state of South Dakota. And if you go to Mount Rushmore, up on the mountainside are carved the faces of four American presidents. There's George Washington. There's Thomas Jefferson. There's Abraham Lincoln. And there's Teddy Roosevelt up there on a mountain carved potentially for years and years to come. And I asked a question in my devotion, why these four men? Well, obviously, if you know the history of America, and if you know these men, then, then perhaps you understand quite quickly why they're up there. But I, I asked the question, why these men and not some of the other presidents? Why not Franklin Pierce? Why not Martin Van Buren? Why not Polk? Why not Donald Trump? Why these four? Now, I know the reason for the four. And I know in a list of top presidents of all time, probably those four would be the top four. But in the Christian church, there's no room for us to have a Mount Rushmore above the pulpit. No room for us to look up to that every week and say, well, there's him and her and him and her and that's it. These are the people into whom I will pour encouragement and love and, and work alongside and serve in this place and, and enjoy fellowship. They're my buddies and that's it. There's no room for favourites in the Christian church. There are no room for divisions and no room for cliques. A lady who used to come to Eden Grove long ago and has long since gone on to glory told me in the very early days, she said, Scott, don't have any cliques. Don't have any cliques. Don't have any people around you who are your Mount Rushmore, your favourites, the top of your tree. There's no room for it. Paul writes to these men and women not to condemn them. Not to humiliate or belittle them, but so that they would realize the unity that they have in Christ. They would realize that despite the rumors and the lies from the false apostles and others, that Paul has wronged no one, corrupted no one, taken advantage of no one, and therefore make room in your hearts for us, Corinth. Love us a wee bit more. Folks, I suspect that the minute all of us would be tempted to say such things. At the minute we're worried and nervous and concerned, at the minute we don't know which way things are going to go, we hear good news and in one moment and then it's just buried under a mountain of bad news the next. At the minute things are so incredibly uncertain and even Boris is coming out and saying, oh, Christmas might be very different and, and if Christmas is taken away from us, then surely we're going to be shaken. Surely we're going to be undone. Don't you believe that for a single second? As believers, as men and women of faith, we have a precious, hope 
a precious faith and a precious saviour called Jesus. And every one of us, whether well-known in our local fellowships, whether it's the one in the pulpit or the one down at the back opening the door or the one that puts out the bins that no one ever sees or ever thanks, we are united together by the blood of Christ and we say to one another in these incredibly difficult days, make room in your hearts for us. See, Paul loved the Corinthians. He loved the local church. And again, that was something that was put to me long ago by a minister by the name of Maynard Cathcart. What a name. What a name. Put him on your Mount Rushmore. Maynard Cathcart. It's like something out of a Wild West novel. Sheriff Maynard Cathcart. He wasn't a sheriff, just a retired minister. But he interviewed me one day for the ministry and he asked me the question, Scott, do you love the church? And I said to him, yes, I do love the church. And he said, well, that's good. Because if you want to see change in the church, you must love the church. Do you love the church? Do you love the local fellowship to which you belong? Do you love the men and women that sit alongside you? The men and women that have caused you hurt? And the men and women that have always been loyal and protective friends. Do you love the church? Or do you love your Mount Rushmore with your four individuals, the golden boys and the golden girls? Paul loves the church. He says, I have great pride in you. I am filled with comfort in all our affliction. I am overflowing with joy. What a challenging picture. That even though this is a place that, that Paul had known hurt, and name calling and rumors and lies and accusations, even though he understood that in Corinth, he was still able to say, make a wee bit of room in your hearts for us because we love you. I love you. And I am convinced that if we are going to get through days like this, then we will find comfort and succor and joy for these days only in the local church. And I know it's difficult. And I know that some of you just cannot do it out of worry or out of health reasons. But I would say to others, others who are fit and well but have not yet returned, come back to your local church. I know it's shorter. I know we can't sing the way we would want. I know we have face masks. I know there's worry. I know there's concern. But come back and take your place. Come back and take your seat. Come back and be a, a caring encouragement and a word of fellowship to those around you. And by the grace of God, by eyes fixed on Jesus, then we will walk through these days of pandemic that none of us this time last year ever dreamt we would see. Paul says... Make room in your hearts for us. Love us. Love us a wee bit more. A word from an apostle to a church. But surely a word that all of us could say to one another. Make room in your hearts. And love us and encourage us. And help us to get through such extraordinary days. Paul continues to show why his love for these Corinthians was so complete. He writes in verse 5, For even when we came into Macedonia, our bodies had no rest, but we were afflicted at every turn, fighting without and fear within. 
This is the circumstance in which Paul finds himself and how he is writing to these Corinthians. He is not living the dream, as I often like to say. He is not someone who, for whom everything goes well, every day is golden. That isn't the case. Paul is in Macedonia. A door opens for him to go to that region. He is preaching the gospel. We know that men and women are saved. We know churches are being built. But he writes, our bodies had no rest. We were afflicted at every turn and he describes it in this way. We were fighting without and we had fear within. Imagine living your life under such pressure, such constant grinding pressure. Constantly having to face battles outside of yourself. Lies and accusations and rumours. Physical threats. Men and women who don't want to hear the gospel and chase you from their towns. Imagine going through life where a good night's sleep is something that you can't remember having before. And all the while being this strong apostle but who still humbly admits had fear within. It is this circumstance that Paul writes. Friends, none of us have been to Macedonia, I suspect. None of us are involved probably in such tumultuous times as the Paul was. But perhaps every one of us at times can resonate with his message. We are tired out. We are done out. We can't sleep with worry. We are filled with fear and doubt. At times there are opponents all around us in workplaces and, and homes and in family disagreements all over the show. We, we are fighting without and, and we know in the depths of our souls how are we really? We're afraid. We're 100% afraid and we don't want to admit it. We want to put on the stiff upper lip and show how big and strong and tough we are. But push comes to shove in the quietness of a moment, driving the car, going to bed at night, standing in the garden, waiting for your dog to come in. We are terrified because this, at the minute, this wasn't the plan. COVID wasn't the plan. None of this was what we expected and yet here it is and we are afraid. Friends, do not be brave today. Do not be one of those men and women that says, Oh, I'm all right, you know. I'm okay, you know. These days are difficult. But Paul does not rest and stay in that place of fear. He reminds us in verse 6 that it is God who comforts the downcast. It is the Lord who lifts us from the pit and, and puts our feet on the solid rock that is Christ. It is the Lord who in days where there is no hope and there is no good news, it is God who draws near and lifts up his people and encourages them and excites them and drives them forward. It is the Lord who does this. It is the Lord who sets our eyes on a place that cannot be shifted. And how does he do this? Well, he is a Lord who works through means. And I am a ordinary means of grace kind of minister. What do I mean by that? Well, how does the Lord lift us up? He uses the word, the word read, the word preached. How does the Lord lift the downcast? He gives us the gift of prayer. How does the Lord encourage the gentle hearted and the, the soft hearted individual that can't keep going? He gives us the sacraments, the Lord's Supper and, and the gift of baptism. It is the Lord who gives us the local church. It is the Lord who lifts us up in these ordinary ways. And we see it here because Paul downhearted 
and struggling was able to say that the God who comforts the downcast did it in Paul's case in verse 6 by the coming of his friend Titus. Friends, if you could go back in time to the start of this year, then you would know I preached through the book of Titus. There was a motive in my madness. Titus takes a great center stage here in 2 Corinthians and I wanted to preach both Titus and this book because here he is again. Paul was comforted by the coming of Titus. Paul was comforted by a member of the local church, by a brother in the Lord. Titus comes with encouraging news. Titus arrives in verse 7 and says that Paul was encouraged not only by his coming, but also by the comfort with which he was comforted by you. Do you see how this has worked? Titus finds comfort with the Corinthians, and Titus goes from Corinth and makes his way to Paul and brings comfort to the apostle, the local church, the church of Jesus Christ, the blood-bought bride, working together, encouraging one another, helping one another on the way. When we're in days of despair, fighting without and fear within, days with no sleep, afflicted at every turn, filled with worry and fear and doubt, the Lord comforts the downcast and he uses ordinary means to do it and he uses an encouraging word from a good friend sometimes to lift us from the gutter. Titus has discovered in Corinth that they are longing for Paul, the second part of verse 7 that they're mourning for him, they, they have zeal for him. They are men and women who have heard his letters, received his letters, and they've come under conviction that how they have acted towards him was not good, it was not positive. And now you can imagine the send-off that they give to Titus. You can imagine them saying to Titus, tell Paul that we are thinking about him and praying for him and love him. Encourage Paul. Tell him that I was asking for him and my mother who is at home misses him. Tell Paul. Encourage Paul. Lift up the downcasted spirit of Paul. And Paul receives Titus and he receives that comfort. See, Paul had written a letter that had grieved them. He says in verse 8, I made you grieve with my letter. And I don't regret it. Although I do a wee bit, he writes, because I know that that letter grieved you, but I, I know that I had to send it. But Paul is still able, even in that feeling, to rejoice all the more. He rejoiced at the encouraging word from Titus. He rejoiced at, at how the Corinthians were thinking about him and, and had received him. And in verse 13, he says, therefore, we are comforted. And besides our own comfort, we rejoiced still more, still in verse 13, at the joy of Titus because his spirit has been refreshed by you. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that surely what we want our local fellowships to be like? A place where our spirits are refreshed. A place where we go to and, and we come home from and we know that we are glad to have been there. And why? Yes, because primarily the word is read and the word is preached and we meet the people of God to worship the Lord. But also because over a cup of coffee someone asks us, how are you really? 
And also because at the door someone says to us, just want you to know that I'm praying for you. And also because in the car park, someone else says, can I just encourage you today? You've been looking a, bit, a little bit flat and a, a little bit down. I, I just want to, to thank you for the things that you've done over the years. Please be encouraged. Imagine a place like that. Imagine a church fellowship where we focused on encouragement, where we were men and women that truly it could be said about us that we were refreshers of each other's souls. See, Paul had boasted about the Corinthians to Titus and he was not put to shame, verse 14. Everything he had said was true and indeed everything he had told them about Titus also proved true. So much so that verse 15, Titus loves the Corinthians. He remembers their obedience and, and they had received him with fear and trembling. He had come carrying bad news from Paul, a stern word from Paul, but they received him with fear and trembling and love. And so the downhearted, downcast Paul receives the encouragement that he needs for difficult days from the mouth of Titus about the local church and he is able then to say in verse 16 I rejoice because I have complete confidence in you. Years ago I remember a, a TV show called The Golden Girls. It was one of my mother's favourites and it was a story about these elderly women living, I believe, in Miami and Florida in the United States. There was Blanche, there was Rose, there was Dorothy and one of their mas was called Sophia. The Golden Girls. It wasn't wonderful, it wasn't desperately funny for a young guy growing up. I'd have much preferred to watch Ric Flair wrestling for the NWA World's Heavyweight title. But it had an amazing theme song. Thank you for being a friend. Traveling down the road and back again. Your heart is true. You're a pal and a confidant. Da, da, da. And if you threw, we will leave it there. But maybe you children of the 80s, maybe you idols that used to love watching those idols, maybe you remember that song. Thank you for being a friend. Travelling down the road and back again, your heart is true. You're a pal and a confidant. We all need a Titus in our lives. I am so desperately thankful that in my life, I met an individual called Noel Agnew. We've mentioned Noel over these past few weeks a wee bit more than usual. Noel has gone home to glory and I can assure you that I am one of hundreds, if not more, who will miss him desperately. He was a pal, a friend and a confidant. He would go and he would meet with you and he would take you out for coffee or lunch or he would ring and he'd give off and he'd say, oh, is your phone broke? You'd say, well, is your phone broke? You've never phoned me. And then you'd, you'd get over that and you'd have a meeting. You'd go to Dobie's, you'd go to some coffee shop, you'd have a yarn. And he would listen to you gurning and whinging for the first half an hour to 45 minutes. And then he would say to you, right, tell me the good news. Tell me the good news. And Noel knew this friend, this pal, this confidant would lift you out of your frustration 
depression, anger, sense of self-righteousness, your sin. And he would force you to consider Jesus. He wouldn't leave you downcast, but he would come and refresh your soul. I thank God for that man. Noel had knew a Titus in my life. And I pray as I reflect on this passage, may I be a Titus in the life of someone else. How often do we treat the local fellowship like it's an irrelevance? It's just something you have to go and do to tick the box. Imagine if we enter church every Sunday morning determined for the gospel, for the sake of Christ, determined to take our part in the local fellowship and to be a refresher of the souls of the saints. Imagine if over coffee we spent less time whinging and more time encouraging. Imagine instead of being grumpy with our brothers and sisters and, and not really speaking to them or treating them very well, imagine we put that aside, we begged God's forgiveness and we went the next time we saw them and encouraged them. Imagine if this is how we worked out our salvation with fear and trembling before the Lord and being encouragers in the local fellowship. Paul, downcast and dispirited in Macedonia, receives a traveller called Titus on his way for Corinth. And all these groups, all these individuals are refreshed with the wonderful news. That's what it is to be the church. That's what it is to be part of Christ's bride. Sometimes we are so busy. Sometimes we are so filled with our own importance and self-righteousness that we, that we miss one another. But it was the Baptist Charles Haddon Spurgeon who once wrote, The feeble saints, the men and women who aren't on our Mount Rushmore, the feeble saints cost Christ as much suffering as the strong ones. The tiniest child of God could not have been purchased with less than Jesus' precious blood. And the greatest child of God did not cost him more. Friends, do you get that? That I, Scott Woodburn, my sins have been paid for by the precious blood of Christ. By faith in Jesus, your sins have been paid for by the precious blood of Christ. The men and women in the local fellowship where you worship, their faith means that they have had their sins paid for by the precious blood of Christ. The men and women in the great Mount Rushmore that you place over your life, their sins by faith in Christ have been paid for by his precious blood. And those individuals who you give no regard because you don't really like them, you don't know their name, you've never spoken to them or they ignored you, through faith in Christ, their sins have been paid for by the precious blood of Christ. If this is true about us, about our local fellowships, then how will we walk into those places? With a chip on our shoulder? With bitterness and anger stored up in our hearts? With a resolution to walk in and to walk out, to take all we can get but never to give anything back? 
Or will we take our place in the church of the Lord, the bride for which he died, and be refreshers and comforters of God's elect? You see, something had happened in Corinth, something significant that should not be missed. There had been problems in that church, of that there was no doubt. We've heard about them in 1 Corinthians. Now in 2 Corinthians, Paul has written other letters to them, stern letters. There have been difficulties, but there had been a supernatural work that had happened in this church. Paul writes to them in verse 9 and he says, I rejoice, not because you were grieved by my letters, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief so that you suffered no loss through us. Paul says that his stern letter, his difficult letter, had led these men and women to a place of repentance. They had realized that they had tolerated sin in their midst. They had realized perhaps that they had treated Paul abysmally. They had realized that they were not in a place that they should have been, and Paul's letter had grieved them into repentance and he reminds them in verse 10 that this godly grief that they had experienced produced in them a repentance that leads to salvation without regret whereas worldly grief produces death what is Paul talking about here well first let's define repentance or shorter catechism puts it this way repentance unto life is a saving grace whereby a sinner out of a true sense of his sin an apprehension of the mercy of God in Christ doth with grief and hatred of his sin turn from it unto God with full purpose of and endeavour after new obedience. That's repentance. It isn't, oh, I'm sorry, I'll try not to do it again. It's not that. True repentance leads to a godly grief. True repentance is a saving grace. It is, it is repentance which knows how filthy and rotten our sin is and it flees from that and it runs to God knowing that as we throw ourselves on his mercy, he will meet us with abundant mercy and grace to sinners like us. It is this repentance that had been stirred up in the city of Corinth, in this church. They were led not to worldly grief which produces only death but true biblical repentance paul says that there had been fruit of that repentance he says in verse 11 see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you but also what eagerness to clear yourselves this message from paul this difficult letter had made these corinthians realize that we have not loved this man enough that we have not walked the walk the way we should have it is time for us to address these concerns they were earnest about it and eager about it they were indignant says paul indignant with the sin in their midst they were fearful fearful of the lord and they were longing with, with zeal to address the concerns with, with punishment. And I know that word sounds negative, but church discipline and sometimes church censure, church punishment is necessary in the church. The Corinthians were eager to put right the things that Paul had addressed. And out of that flows this, this love and concern. 
and it is displayed in full sight of the Lord. Paul tells us that in verse 12. Although I wrote to you, it wasn't for the sake of the wrongdoer, and it wasn't for the sake of the one who had suffered the wrong, but in order that your earnestness for us might be revealed to you in the sight of God. Friends, I pray today in my own life that the Lord would use 2 Corinthians 7 to produce in me a true repentance. A repentance for the times that life has been all about me. That there hasn't been time for my brothers and sisters. That my conversations have been filled with nonsense rather than words of encouragement. That I have overlooked men and women who I just didn't have the time for. Where I've walked past and decided, not today, not today, Josephine. Not today, Sammy. Not, not today, Robert. Too busy. May the Lord forgive me the times that I have looked at the local church and forgotten that she is the blood-bought bride of Christ. Friends, I pray indeed that we would be in Eden Grove and in whatever church is represented in your house, fellowships where this is all worked out in bright and in glorious technicolor. Because when we come to the church, she remains in the dark, dark pit of this world that we currently in. The church of Jesus Christ is the kingdom of God on this earth. And she remains a light unto the nations. May we be encouragers. May we be refreshers. May we be men and women who love the church and serve her in every single way. And as I finish today, my friends, please listen to me if you do not belong to the church. You see, there is such a thing as worldly grief, as Paul puts it. There is such a thing as being sorry, but not really. See, worldly grief realizes that, oh, I've done wrong, but sure, we'll get over it. Worldly grief never understands that ultimately the one you have offended by your sin is the Lord himself. Worldly grief never looks onto Yahweh and throws itself upon his abundant mercy. And worldly grief, says the apostle at the end of verse 10, only produces death. My friends, hear the word of God today. Hear the Lord as he challenges you to consider Jesus. In these days of hopelessness, consider Jesus. See, our confession reminds us that there is no sin so small, but it deserves damnation. But also, thanks be to God, there is no sin so great that it can bring damnation upon those who truly repent. I pray our land will be filled with churches where repentance is a day-to-day -day fruit in our relationships and our lives and our walk with the Lord. And as you witness those as an unbeliever, may the word of God that echoes out of those places bring you to your knees in repentance before the Lord. 
As I preach today, it is Thursday. It's a service for Sunday. And by that stage, by the time this goes live, maybe it will be Biden or maybe it will be Trump. Or maybe they will be in the courts and still fighting about your Grammy's vote in Pennsylvania. I don't know. I can't predict it. And if 2020 has got anything to say, probably things will get worse before they get better. But here is the hopeful news that I share with you today. Do not put your trust in princes, in mortal men that cannot save. Do not look onto the White House or Downing Street to Trump, Biden or Johnston. Instead today, out of a knowledge that you are a sinner in the eyes of a holy God, out of the knowledge that any, God, any grief you feel in this world only leads to death. Out of a knowledge that you need Christ. Then I urge you to repent. To trust in Jesus. And be ye saved. I pray that this sermon will have been a refreshment. An encouragement. And a challenge. To the church. And to those outside it. For the sake of Jesus and the furtherance of his precious gospel.